Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, that is JV3. And I am privileged today to talk about something that overlaps with my nine to five. And today we are talking about this concept of environmental justice. Environmental justice is really about the fair treatment and the involvement of people in the development, implementation, evaluation, enforcement, etc., of environmental laws. And what we've seen in current context is that folks don't have a fair chance to participate in the decision-making process, and it's typically the people who are impacted the most. I can think of countless examples. You know, you can go from Hurricane Katrina You could talk about the recent flooding here in Detroit, where there should be more involvement by the people most harmed by the policies and the decisions that we make. I've had the opportunity now to serve on our state's uh, environmental justice task force for quite some time, and it was not it was interesting because it wasn't my initial foray into to this work. Or at least I, I didn't bring much of an environmental justice or environmental work background at all. But I did bring that, that equity understanding and being able to tie it back to public health and health outcomes. And what I've learned over the past few years is that we all in some way take a role in shaping our environment. And from a policy standpoint, this could be the built environment through like our housing. This could be our public health, where we have policies around how we do inspections of water, of lead, of et cetera, et cetera. And there's also the the regulation side of things, like who is regulating how the emissions that go into the air are classified as safe or unsafe. And all of that to say that environmental justice to me is one of those things where there's so many great opportunities to adopt a health and all policy type lens or a health and all policy type approach to the way we do the things that we do. And so today we get to hear from a fellow social worker. I realized that I I tend to highlight social workers on here for a variety of reasons. One, because it just shows the different things that we can do. And it steps away from this notion that we're all micro or that we're all, uh, I hate to say baby snatchers because that's what we've been portrayed as or or child welfare workers. But we we do so much more and our skill set is so much broader than the, the therapeutic process. No diss to those folks because I've got a lot of great friends who are our therapists. But I, I just want to highlight here that there are other things that folks are doing. But we get to hear today from Juanita Hernandez Quadron, who is actually a school social worker, but I'll, I'll let her introduce herself here in a second, who's taking a, a firm stance on what it means to be engaged in this space. And so Juanita, I would love for you to introduce yourself to the Equity Matters listeners. Oh, hi, everyone. Uh, Thank you so much for having me here as a guest speaker. 
Um, so I'm Juanita Hernandez Caldron, and I'm currently living in Aurora, Colorado, which sits in the original homeland of the Arapaho and Cheyenne nations. I've had the privilege to call this place home for the last four years. You know, I don't think I knew you were in Aurora. Um, I was a part of a project a few years back before I changed jobs, where I was working with their health system and their health department on some social determinants of health work. They were looking for some technical assistance, but that's cool mm -hmm. because now I know a little bit about the area too. Yes, yes, yes. We're here right next to Denver. We can see the mountains from here. We're just a little bit more to, to the east. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Juanita, what are you doing currently? I'm currently a school social worker by trade and urban gardener uh, by craft and a baker by compulsion. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So when I will start crafting this episode, I know that we've had some conversations online around the work that you're doing, urban gardening specifically, but ties to the environment and environmental justice. So to give some backstory, could you give some examples of threats to the environment or why we should even adopt an EJ lens? Um, yes, yes. I mean, um, I have found out through even the people I work with or, or, or my own students uh, that most of us are really aware of, of the climate change crisis and what this means for our ecosystems. But most people are not really overtly aware of the disproportionate impact that it will have in our communities of color. Um, and I'm not talking about just in our country, I'm talking about the whole world. Um, climate change is, is really the result of a legacy of extraction from the earth and colonialism. Um, climate change entails uneven and unfairly distributed impacts which are intensified by the unequal distribution of wealth and resources. We cannot understand and study the social ramifications of climate change while ignoring that some of the areas that are most hardly impacted by climate change happen to be former colonies in Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean. And the areas that are going to be most impacted in our country are predominantly uh, black and brown communities. I'll give you a few examples of how this catastrophe is really unfolding before our eyes. In the Caribbean, we've had Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane um, Irma, and more recently, Hurricane Maria, all in the span of about, what, five, six years? These have been some of the most powerful storms ever recorded in human history. This should have been like a once in a lifetime um, a weather event that naturally will maybe occur once every 500 years or so. We've had these three huge, very strong hurricanes happen in, in, the, in the Caribbean in the span of five, five or six years. Um, Bangladesh, Nepal, and India are also facing extreme heat waves and flooding uh, that is taking the lives of thousands of people every year. Um, in Africa, we are having really thousands of people die due to mudslides in Sierra Leone. And in East Africa, people are experiencing 
famine that is causing a profound and inconceivable human suffering. Um, these extreme weather events are a death sentence for farmers that rely on growing their crops and raising their livestock as their only source of income. Um, people not being able to harvest the land to, to feed their families um, are going to be displaced and, 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 and they are going to, uh, to be looking for a new place to call home. And is our country, our, our rich countries willing to take climate refugees? I mean, it, the past is the best predictor for future behavior. We have seen how difficult it is for refugees to, to get to a place where they can be safe. And, and, and we are starting to see the, these waves of, of refugees that are looking for, for a safe place to call home. And on the other hand, if perhaps they are not moving, what's the alternative? starvation, suicide. It is estimated that in only the past two decades, there have been 300,000 farmers that died by suicide. Um, and at the same time, these weather events are exacerbating um, inequality. So, so we cannot ignore the connection here between how destitute our, our poorest um, farmers are becoming and, and, and this trend in suicide that keeps coming up, not, not only in our country, but, but around the world. So I appreciate you adding the, the farmer perspective, right? Because that's not a population that we talk about often as far as some of the inequities that we see. Could you also describe some other inequities that come up when it comes to the environment or any specific health outcomes that we might see? Uh, yes, of course. I mean, the reality is that um, the impacts of the climate crisis on vulnerable communities are happening because our country is willing to sacrifice Black, Brown, and Indigenous lives by placing polluting and extractive facilities such as oil pipelines or busy interstate highways in predominantly black, brown and indigenous communities. The bottom line is that the climate crisis is at its core, a racial injustice crisis. Black Americans are three times more likely to die from pollution nationwide. And with the global coronavirus pandemic, we know that black and brown Americans are four times more likely to test positive for COVID-19. And studies also show that dead rates from COVID-19 are higher in areas with dirty air, which is our areas that our communities historically tend to live in because the government tends to put in these facilities in our neighborhoods. This means that we are going to be the hardest hit by COVID-19. Um, indigenous black and brown communities around the world are more vulnerable to climate change because of racism, um, a system of racism that sees them um, commonly located near factories, smoke-filled highways, exploding pipelines, and other infrastructures driving the climate crisis. On the other hand, richer and wide 
their communities can fight off highways in the midst of their neighborhoods. They can fight off oil and gas pipelines. They can fight off polluting factories. And us, uh, poorer brown or black communities, we have less power um, to reject such plants or, or less of a choice about where to live. Um, and, and we certainly suffer the consequences and, and our health is impacted as a result. I'm glad you mentioned racism in this case because I actually gave a presentation today um, around root causes and folks tend to stop when they're thinking about social problems at kind of this social determinants of health level and thinking about the environment and thinking about um, where homes are located and the design of communities like the actual urban planning behind it. And I don't think people often connect institutional racism or classism to the environment in the way that our communities are designed. Mm -hmm. And so could you draw maybe even more clearly the connection between those two things? Yes, 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 it's, it's all related. Uh, you can't say that like with Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico or Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans was was just a coincidence that it, it happened. It was an isolated extreme weather event. I mean, this the loss of life um, and how long it take for, it took for these communities to get help. It, it comes out of a legacy of neglect and racism. As our weather and our climates are disrupted, black and brown communities will be affected the most because our communities are simply forgotten and, and neglected. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what some of the activity around environmental justice is right now. How are people mobilizing to address this problem? I really think that our liberation and our survival cannot be contingent on the good intentions of corporations, specifically the oil industry, or it cannot be contingent on, on the evolution of those in power, specifically white and rich people. I, I believe that part of the solution to fight climate change and its impacts will have to start at the micro level, um, because obviously, um, most of our elected officials who have the power to implement radical change at the macro level are not willing to do very much um, historically and specifically not very much for black indigenous and brown communities um, i am suggesting that we disrupt the current system through a grassroots radical change in our behavior and our attitudes about climate change um, climate change is already affecting us. This is not something that we can postpone to focus our efforts at a more convenient time. We can all do a little bit, even if it is one thing you can change. This may look like getting to know the candidates in our local elections for city council, or even just showing up to the city council meetings to provide testimony if there are plans to make changes to, to, to our neighborhoods um, or getting to know the candidates who care about conservation and climate justice, um, promoting them, doing phone banking to get people registered to vote or 
perhaps if if one is able driving people to the polls um, to to make sure that they can cast their vote in, in local elections, which typically don't get as much uh, promotion as bigger bigger um, elections. Um, and it's not only politics. Let's say instead of driving to work, perhaps you take the bus or you carpool. Doesn't have to be anything too radical. Um, anything that can lessen our car carbon footprint. If you're able-bodied, consider biking to work or to run errands. Um, if you don't want to show up to work sweaty, perhaps you can show up sweaty at the farmer's market and nobody will care. <laughs> hmm. If your wallet allows it, perhaps even trading your car for a hybrid or an electric vehicle, if, if you can afford it, if it's in, within your means, other ways that we can change our behavior to lessen our carbon footprint are as easy as eating less meat. Note that I'm not saying go vegan. Um, that is a very personal decision and one that takes a lot of commitment. Um, but we have to be aware uh, when we eat that meat production is the primary source of methane that is 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Um, we can try to consume local products if, if, we, if we are able to, to lower our carbon footprint, to, to, to lower the distance that food needs to travel to reach us. And we, we can even, if we're already changing some of our habits, we can even try to buy items in bulk um, and packaging the product uh, with our own containers to re reduce our reliance in in single-use plastics. Um, we have to remember that climate change is already taking lives and any impact, no matter how small, is worth implementing. We cannot just give up on our planet. Now, I'm, I'm super curious because I am so macro, right? Like I, I love the big picture things. What are some of those examples of radical change that we could do on the macro level as well? On the macro level, wow, yes. Um, that's not typically my forte. Um, I think that really our government has a lot of power um, to create change, not, not only in our country, but to subsidize other nations who may be struggling with transitioning from, um, from oil or burning um, coal to get energy into a cleaner option like solar panels, wind energy, even nuclear um, energy. Um, we, we could be doing a lot more than that. We, we could certainly um, support other countries and, and that will create a, a significant a significant reduction in the in our planet's um, CO two emissions. And so, getting specific, what role do you play in addressing these challenges? Well, I, I have been very privileged that I am able, um, for instance, to be a given member to support organizations that fight climate change and that promote access to clean air and the outdoors um, in predominantly black and brown communities. Um, for instance, I'm a given member at the Denver Urban Farm, which is a nonprofit that provides uh, youth 
in, in an urban area here in northern Denver and northern Aurora um, with an opportunity to be educated uh, on growing their own food and on stewarding the, the environment. Um, I'm, I also run a pantry for, for our students in, in which I throw in some of the food that I grow myself and, and some of the eggs that, I, that my own chickens lay um, to, to support our students in, in their nutrition. Um, I, I have been uh, able to replace my gas thirsty truck for an electric vehicle. Um, and I also tried to lower my carbon footprint by generating just as much of my own food as my chickens, my garden, and my greenhouse will allow me to. Also consuming local and, and, and reducing our meat consumption. How do we keep environmental justice at the forefront of all of our work? So I know in many cases, folks are willing to adopt an equity lens and typically as a racial equity lens, but say we wanted to take that same approach to environmental justice and I might not work in that particular space. How could I as an advocate for the work do that? Yeah, it, it comes down to, to be mindful, to, to remind everyone that it, it is all tied together. The, the poorest, the most marginalized countries which happen to be former European countries for the most part, um, are being the ones that are losing human lives. If the governments in European countries um, are not willing to act immediately to address the crisis, then it's, it's going to fall on every single one of us to radically change how we think about climate change and how we act knowing that our actions are having real life and death consequences in our own communities and around the world. Like we talked about earlier, people are already dying. People are already being displaced. Um, those in power are the heads of governments who could subsidize these countries, um, these poor countries to, to get resources, to, to help the population um, are, are not being all they can be, are, are not being as supportive as they could be. Um, so it's going to fall on all of us to, to make radical change. And I'm a sucker for logic models, right? And, and that might just be because I'm trying to finish up this capstone. How will we know that we've achieved equity in this space? Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I think this can mean different things to different people. But it, I think that equity, when, when it comes to climate change, could be achieved when richer countries that are still extracting, actually, resources from developing nations are willing to pay reparations to those countries most impacted by climate change, hunger and destitution in Africa, in Asia and in the Caribbean um, and, and Central and South America. Um, they have the capital, they have benefited from the land. They're still extracting resources from the land. They can afford to pay reparations to all of these countries to help um, developing nations cope with this climate change crisis and to have robust resources to help the population. At home, the fight for environmental equity will look like a full stop to placing 
polluting and extractive industries in, in predominantly black and brown communities, um, especially. Uh, I think adopting universal healthcare to uh, address and heal the health disparities that have been generated as a result of environmental hazards uh, will, will have to, to be addressed as well. And appropriately funding and giving aid to our communities when we're affected by extreme weather events, um, appropriately and timely. I know a lot of folks who, when we start talking about environmental justice, tend to measure the progress outside of our lifetime, right? And they start talking about, you know, we can do things for generations to come. What kind of change can we see in our, li our lifetime? Should we make better decisions and we keep environmental justice at the forefront? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we, we need to act now. This is not something that we can postpone in 10 years or five years. Today, we must act today. What, whatever change, you can make start today ask yourself what is one thing that i can do today or this week or maybe even this month i'll be generous <laughs> to curve climate change um what we must not do is think that is up to only politicians or only uh, government agencies or or nonprofits to act on this issue um I brainstorm, um, we brainstorm together um, some, some interventions that we can do at, at the micro level. And hopefully um, that was a seed that, that, that we planted for our listeners to come up with an idea or, or a goal for, for them to work on for the next week or the next month. Um, but we cannot ignore this issue. Black and brown people are already tragically dying as a result of climate change. And the corporations and the governments or of powerful countries are still ransacking the planet for resources. We cannot leave this for later. We have to start today. And so my, my last question before we get ready to wrap up is it's tied to the discourse, right? So how do you typically respond when someone tells you that climate change is not real? Because there are still people who believe that. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there are still people who believe that. And unfortunately, we have come to a place where it's almost belonging to a tribe, whether you believe in climate change or not. Um, I look at the data. I look at the consequences of climate change. I, I, I don't look at opinions. This is not an opinion. This is not like, oh, there was a very strong hurricane. So I believe that climate change is real because I'm looking at this single incident. I, I look at the data that scientists are presenting us. Um, but unfortunately, people who don't believe in climate change tend to not want to believe in climate change because it challenges other beliefs that they have about the world. And I, I simply wouldn't focus my efforts there. I will focus on mobilizing the people who, who listen to the scientists, uh, the people who care about the impact that climate change is having in our communities. And I will focus my energy there. Respect. <laughs> now, I know you mentioned that you bake by compulsion. So <laughs> yes. 
I want to make sure that people can keep up with you and your baking efforts because I'm always looking and I'm like, that looks so good. <laughs> How do people keep up with you, your baking, your work on social media? Yes, of course, James. Well, if any of you, especially if you enjoy Mexican pastries or, or Mexican bread, like a good tres leches cake or conchas, or every now and then I throw in a recipe for, for a dish, not, not only bread, uh, but certainly you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Jojo in Colorado or follow my blog at the Great Mexican Baking Blog dot blogspot.com i've been to your your blog confession and i'm like i need more stuff <laughs> <laughs> yes i i i feel like i have been neglecting my blog but i i will be working on it during spring break <laughs> and and yes more things to come more things to come <laughs> well juanita i appreciate you and the time i think ej it's newer to me. I've joined a work group at my current employer and it brings together all the different state agencies to talk about um, environmental justice. And it's interesting to see the different perspectives and overlap. So me coming from the state health department and then you hear it from the housing authority and then you hear from the environmental um, energy and environment folks, like we're all looking to address this issue and it really reinforces for me back that like health and all policies and the way that you broke it down for me here, it's, it's bar none like this is a priority that we need to really focus on because it's gonna drastically impact the way we live. It is, it is. I and mean, you know, it takes it back to social work 101, person and environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. we are part of our environment. Well, Juanita, until we talk again, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And of course, I want to thank Juanita for joining us on the podcast. What's clear to me is that we often, I don't want to say displace responsibility, but we feel like it's somebody else's job to protect the environment. We think of larger corporations, but I think it's really the collective behaviors that we all display that could make a difference. And I think Juanita really highlighted that, that there's tangible, simple, yet effective things that we could be doing that could really preserve uh, the place that we call home. And when we start thinking about the inequities, I realize that there are certain places that have been just destroyed as a result of colonialism, as a result of the ways that we've been placed within our communities. And all of that is important to, to consider, especially as we start talking about how do we reverse those trends. And so, of course, just thank you, Juanita, for coming and blessing us with your expertise. A few announcements as we wrap up today's episode. This Saturday, so usually I don't do timestamps on episodes just because I, you know, just don't but this saturday august 14th we'll be making a special announcement regarding the social justice academy um if you follow us on social media you'll definitely get that if you're subscribed to the listserv you'll definitely get that but if you're not you definitely want to be um a few things just to be aware of as we approach september 14th the first module of the the Equity Matters Social Justice Academy, taking up all the space, um, understanding power and positionality. 
it will cost a hundred dollars. This a hundred dollars includes participation in the workshop in addition to a workbook and access to the recording. And so the reason why I wanted to make those things available, the workbook is more so for you to reflect on how you situate yourself in any environment that you walk in. It's to consider how your social identity shows up and what comes with that social identity. So that that's the first piece. The second is around accessing the webinars recording. I've gone back and forth on this, but I realize in any other occasion where I've presented, the recording is still available. And I want folks who are engaged in this work to be able to go back, to ask questions, to think about how they want to use it. If it's for their own training purposes, if it's for their classroom, whatever it happens to be for, I, I want you to have that. Sign up will be live soon. Join the listserv, follow us on social media. You will get updated, notified as soon as it's live. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram and at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. I'm still back and forth on creating a website. Might not need it. We'll see. If you think we need it, send us an email. I think that's Equity Matters Podcast at gmail.com. Of course, we're still accepting individuals for the call for features. We're slowly filling up the fall. Um, really excited about some of the episodes that we have planned. And I think that covers all of our church announcements for today. I'm just looking at my list. Everything's covered. So, Social Justice Academy, follow us on social media, and just get ready, folks. Equity matters. Equity matters.